This is a WTOP original podcast. From Podcast One. Previously on Colors. The Colors documentary series. Part one. How we got here. The words of Gianna Floyd, George Floyd's daughter. What do you miss most about your daddy? Well, I ask about him all the time. And that's kind of it. Yeah. Well, when you ask about him, what are you asking about? Well, I was asking, how did my dad get hurt? Coming up in this episode of Colors. In, the, in Latin America, not only in Mexico, but most of Latin America, we have a, we see a connection between the color of your skin, between your social class, and also your ethnicity. Dr. Guadalupe Correa Cabrera from George Mason University joins me as co-host to explain that if we think race is complicated here, it's even more complicated in Latin America. Uh, people that look more indigenous, that, you know, have uh, darker skin are usually poor people and usually they are left behind. And Dr. Zuli Orozco from the Autonomous University of Baja California says race is being criminalized at the border. Now, for example, that non-Mexicans can actually travel to the U.S. because we, uh, the gates are closed for us. Um, they're still um, crossing, of course, drugs, uh, money, and, and, and people. And yet the narrative is that Mexicans are actually crossing with drugs as well. And, and um, it's not happening. It's, it's, it's mostly um, U.S. citizens that have access to cross both to Mexico and back to the United States. That's coming up in this episode of Colors. Simmering racial tensions. Segregation now and tomorrow and forever. Fighting injustice. I have a dream. Conflict looming. Brutality exposed. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. The search for solutions starts here. From WTOP in Washington, D.C. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. Check the mic and make sure it sounds right, boys. I'm J.J. Green, and I'm Black. I am Guadalupe Correa Cabrera, and I'm a Latina. And this is Colors. Guadalupe, you and I have known each other for, for a little while, and we've talked about race before. And it's really interesting to me, one of the things that I discovered in talking to you recently, is that race... In the black community, which I am a member of, and um, here in the U.S., which is where you uh, spend quite a bit of time uh, as well, is different um, when you start talking about how it's perceived in other places, in other countries. For instance, in Mexico, racism here is pretty straightforward. It usually has to do with the color of the skin. But in talking to you recently, 
um, it's a little different in Mexico. And um, you you have invited a friend here um, and a, a noted professional and expert here to talk with us about that today, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And and we were wanted to focus this conversation on uh, the border and this concept of of North America. The problem that we find in Mexico is that uh, in the rest of Latin America, because of our colonial past, we are colonies of, of Spain, and there was a presence of indigenous groups. Therefore, there was also a mix between the Spaniards and Europeans who came to the New World, and there was a there was a mix. So we are mestizos. That's what we that's what we think of when we think about ourselves as mestizos. Mm-hmm. However, there is a big connection in the in Latin America, not only in Mexico but most of Latin America. We have a we see a connection between the color of your skin, between your social class, and also your ethnicity. Uh, people that look more indigenous, that you know, have uh, darker skin, are usually poor people, and usually they are left behind. I'm going to introduce Professor Zulia Orozco, who is a professor at the Universidad Autónoma de Baja California in the city of Mexicali, which is the capital city of the state of Baja California. Which you know, you you know the state because. Uh, Tijuana is located there and it's a very important border city. He was born and raised in Tijuana. It's a Mexican national and he, she is an expert on national security issues, Mexican national security issues and issues connected to illicit networks. Professor, welcome. Thank you, JJ, for having, for having us. Yeah, no, thank you for, for, for agreeing to join us on this program. What is your view of race in America? What is, what, how do you view the problems of racism in America and race in general? It's very interesting from a local approach here in Tijuana. We have a very near relationship with San Diego, the city of San Diego and the society of San Diego. So uh, through this COVID experience, we have recently experienced um, different changes related to uh, race and border controls, as well as uh, racial disparities in the American society. For example, we have seen in the recent weeks Uh, a significant change of perspective from Trump's administration to Biden's administration um, regarding the border controls, as well as the structural and institutional racism um, regarding the enforcement agencies of of the border enforcement apparatus that has targeted Mexicans. And I mean like the border, the Mexicans that live in the border as a great threat to national security, as well as to public safety by shutting down the international border for uh, uh, over a year. And this has been a historic event, um, which which has um, significant mention that this is this a criminal, criminal, criminalizing uh, the border crossing for Mexicans, even though the US Mexican government has heavily invested economically in, in, in a 21st century smart border crossing. Professor Orozco, with regards to border border security issues, how do you understand race in America and how that would uh, be differentiated from your understanding of race in Mexico, for example, and the rest of Latin America? But in particular, how would you see race in Mexico? Being a border uh, a border uh, borderlander, 
Uh-huh. How, how, do you, how do you see this? How, yes. how would yes. you understand this? <laughs> yes, thank you, Well, Well, I think this, this is, um, it's a, it has a different shape. In Mexico, it has a different tone, for example. It has, it's very related or is much related to uh, class, social class. And therefore, uh, we have the, the Mexican term raciclasismo, which is a connection between racism and classism at the same time. And um, it has been historically uh, uh, structural in, in the Mexican culture. And although we have, we have as a society, we have grown to, to avoid this, this attitude and this, and this um, um, relationships, um, is, is, it has not been enough though. As well in the, in the United States is different, it's more related to race uh, and, and not classism. You know, it's very interesting you mentioned that, Professor, because uh, I'm wondering, have you seen this construct uh, unfolding in America, or is this something that you believe is still just relegated to Mexican culture in Mexico? As I was speaking of, of classism? Racism, the blend of racism and classism. Yes. yes um there has been in the United States. There has been recent studies regarding the the East Side, no, uh, especially focusing in real estate. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the the black society uh, going into into let's see into the concentrated areas where there is mostly white. Um, uh, I don't know a white society or white people, no. So um, it's very difficult for them to engage uh, as an equal uh, society because um, the enterprises as well as the government has uh, political policies that actually makes them difficult. For example, um, uh, they actually, as, as I mean, they, I mean, Latin and black uh, population mm-hmm. pay double or twice tax, tax um, related to real estate. And uh, there's actually an approach um, that the the people that is attending them on the on buying real estate has to have either a Latin Latin background or, or a black uh, uh, an, an African American background. So this actually makes it very uh, discriminating because it's like a, it's like engaging them in another narrative, and, and it is also classism, but it's it's addressed in a different matter than in Mexico, because in Mexico, it's not only discriminating and, and, and it's, 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 it's very hurtful. Yeah. Um, but, but it, but it's, it's just different ways, but it's, it's just very marked down in Mexican society rather than in the American society. No. Yes. Um, yes, Dr. Orozco, it's, it's very, in the, in the U.S. society, race is very straightforward, and that has to do with the history of, of, the, of the United States. Uh, it also has to do, racism in Latin America, racism in Mexico, also has to do with the history of our region and our colonial past. I think it's very important to also understand that it's not just, we are not just talking about our regions as separate entities. And you have been, you know, you're aware of that being, uh, I mean, living at the border. 
So, I mean, how, I mean, how could, how could you understand this? When you live at the border, how do you see that? I mean, you know, I, I have the, I have the sense that, for example, Mexicans are very welcoming uh, of uh, United States citizens and, you know, people coming from Canada and, and the U.S. We have uh, also, uh, how could you understand race in the framework of NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, and today the USMCA, a free trade agreement between three countries that are partners and that are mm-hmm. neighbors? Yes, well, we have a historic relationship with, with the city of San Diego. I mean, we're sister sister cities, so there is we, are, we have a, a good in, um, relationship with them in political, economical, and especially cultural matters. Um, however, COVID has, has made a very interesting experience in the local area that has an, a federal approach as well because the gates, the international border has been shut down um, because of COVID, right? Because um, there is, there is an, uh, a program that has been uh, prepared by the U.S. government as well by the Mexican government and there has been no uh, in, in middle program for us that we live in the border to actually um, continue with our daily routines. As, as many of us, for example, that live in Tijuana and the Mexican side, uh, usually study, work, or uh, pr- uh, get access to, to medical um, um, services in the United States because of U.S. citizens living in Mexico and in daily basis crossing the border. So it has been a very uh, interesting relationship right now because there is also a narrative that's been, that, that has been constructed by the government official related race and criminalizing race, for example, with security issues. Now, for example, that non-Mexicans can actually travel to the U.S. because we, uh, the gates are closed for us. Um, they're still um, crossing, of course, drugs, money, and, and, and people. And yet the narrative is that Mexicans are actually crossing with drugs as well. And, and um, it's not happening. It's, it's, it's mostly um, U.S. citizens that have access to cross both to Mexico and back to the United States, even though there is um, special uh, constraining uh, policy but still there is access for, for U.S. citizens, but not to Mexicans. So this is actually a very interesting experience, mm-hmm. historical. Yeah, you know, uh, Dr. Orozco, this conversation we're having, to me, seems it needs to be boiled down for, for folks who may not understand uh, what we're talking about here. And I'm, I'm going to try to do it, and you correct me, please, please, if I'm wrong. What we're talking about here is a system of economics uh, and that essentially freezes out brown people and people without money. Um, they get left behind or frozen out. Uh, th- 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 this seems to me to be about color, class, and cash. And the folks that we're talking about, our brothers and sisters in, in Mexico, um, can't afford, in many cases, to do, to move, to do anything. So they're stuck uh, in this situation uh, and have to do what they have to do to survive. And, yeah. you know, closing the border, the criminalization that you're talking about is making it a crime or making it illegal to cross the border is this is a part of this problem. Is that correct? That's correct. And there is, of course, there's a structural and institutional racism 
operating at least a year ago uh, through the international border, U.S. border, because um, it, even even U.S. citizens uh, can't cross that work on daily basis in the United States can cross to their work, and they have to, for example, park their cars literally in the in the in the lane where they cross at 2 a.m. in the morning, go to sleep at some place and go back at 4 a.m. When, when they open the gate and cross. Imagine doing that one day, it's okay, but imagine doing that in a daily basis. Uh, and of course, they're living in Mexico because yeah. they can't afford living in San Diego. It's just very expensive, no? And even though they work very hard, it's, it's, it's for the brown population, and I'm, I'm saying uh, it's very difficult for them to actually stay in the United States and, and just go back and forth. And yet there is, of course, an institutional racism pervading through the um, border enforcement uh, apparatus, indeed. And there is also chaos because some of them, I mean, they have lost their jobs in the United States. And since they have been living their lives in San Diego, when they stay here, uh, even though they have family members, it's very complicated for them to engage in the in the in the work, you know, in the in the in the in the labor uh, system. So it's mm -hmm. actually destructuring here in, in the Mexican border, and it's very 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 difficult for commerce as well as the population. Yeah, you know, um, Dr. Correa Cabrera. Guadalupe is uh, a, an associate professor at George Mason University, and we've talked about this criminalization piece for a while. So, mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Correa Cabrera, would you put into context for us what you think may be a solution to this? Yes, and I would like to. I would like also to add a little bit about about uh, what what Dr. Orozco was was talking about in order to try to come up with a solution. Because I also want uh, Dr. Orozco to tell us a little bit more of what how they how they feel this. Uh, I would say systemic racism yes. at the border. I would like to know a little bit more about the conditions or how she how how she can how she how she understands this or how she has lived this through by being uh, living at the border. But also I have to say something that has to do with this perception that in Mexico there is drug-related violence and this drug-related violence is perpetrated only and it's originated only in Mexico or in Central America, for example. This fear that uh, people coming from Central America, or in this case of Mexico, even with this conception of North America, that, are, that will come with their drugs, with their violence, that are going to come to commit crimes in the United States, and that justifies the militarization of, of border security and the creation of the system uh, that protects the United States from people coming from the South that unfortunately uh, have, you know, brown skin and they are poor, right? So this fear of the poor and this fear of those that are going to be in gangs and supposedly, you know, drugs and drug-related violence to the United States, that is connected to the experiences that maybe Dr. Orozco is being living at. Because I think that before trying to come up with a solution, we want to know a little bit more of how people living in Mexico feel about yes. the situation. Yeah. Yes. Uh, well, from an economical perspective, it has been chaotic. The first three months, um, many Mexican residents living in the border lost their businesses, not only their jobs, but their businesses. 
So there has been an economic impact in the local area. Then, of course, there is um, we, we learn through this uh, through this uh, ex exchange of experiences from from Reynosa to of, of that's East Mexico all the way to West, uh, conversating with uh, entrepreneurs as well as businessmen, and we have we have some at some point reached um, an understanding of how to export um, our goods to the United States and not lose the business sector in the in the in the way and um, you know actually there is a very interesting approach that changed through um, Biden's uh, uh, administration because with Donald Trump's that has been mostly this year of, of the border shutting down completely um, uh, Biden has actually provided us with vaccines not only uh, through airplane you know arriving them to Mexico to 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 the Mexican states northern northern mexican states but as well as actually kind of opening and uh, it's not a, it's not um uh it's not it's not all, it's not that they're open the gates are not they're not open but um actually mexican brown mexican connationals are crossing now and they have mentioned in the local media that they're starting to have access to vaccines so this is a change of perspective mm -hmm. that it's coming all the way from the federal government and i would like to say that yes it is actually biden's administration that has changed that approach and has welcomed and has become friendlier than rather um, trump's administration that just automatically from one day to another shut the gate imagine cutting everything relationships your job um your school your 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 health uh issues because now the front the the gates are shut it's just like the like um, Germany with the with with the wall in the in the Cold War. Yes. No, basically. So it's, it's it has been a dramatic um, impact in the zone as well for San Diego, not only for Tijuana, but as well in San Diego because we have remember we have this connected community, and um, we're eager to to have access, you know, to to what used to be San Diego, Tijuana. Yeah, uh, Guadalupe. What do you think is uh, some possible uh, solutions to this? I believe that uh, what we are what we are living has to do with the big inequalities and and the lack of understanding and knowledge about each other. Um, it's there's prejudice that has a lot to do with lack of education and with lack of will to know about the other. Um, discrimination and big inequalities will be present but need to be addressed. The issue of inequality is the main issue that we now need to solve in Latin America and the whole continent. At the same time, we need to improve education and we need to be open to understand other cultures and not just base our appreciation or our, or our policies towards others based on, on this, uh, on, on this, you know, misinformation and these prejudices about people who are poor. People who are poor are not going to bring uh, violence just because they are poor, if they, but just because they come from places where there is a lot of violence uh, present, such as uh, the countries of the Northern Triangle, Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, or Mexico. I think we need to, uh, as, as a society, to try to, uh, I mean, contribute to the education system to make everybody aware of what we are about 
And this is what I try to do in the United States. I try to teach courses on border policy, U.S.-Mexico po politics, and Mexican culture. It's, it's very, very important to communicate who we are to the others. So prejudices will be disappearing, but also we need to work on, 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 on inequality. Yes, Dr. Orozco, please, please tell me and, and try to uh, add to what I find as the, the most important issues to address and how to address them. Yes, um, what I think is the most interesting experience here is that even though the U.S. and Mexican government has heavily invested uh, economically in this 21st century smart border, um, considering that some of this experience such as COVID or even terrorism could happen in the, in the future, um, this border that is already established in both sides has not actually pro worked properly because um, it has been shut down and it has criminalized one side and not the other, no? because Mexico has kept its borders open to the U.S. citizens, but rather the U.S. has shut the borders to the Mexican nationals, and that has affected many, many things as well, especially uh, the economical and social aspects. But what I would like to keep in mind is that even though the federal governments of both sides have invested throughout the years in technology, in, um, in, in education, in technical uh, support and everything, it, for this national security approach, um, I think it has not actually worked um, in, in, through this COVID experience because now we see that it's not working uh, for, the, for the society on both sides. We're going to uh, have to wrap up soon, but I would like to ask you, Dr. Orozco, uh, Vice President Harris is in uh, Latin America now, uh, and one of the messages that we've gotten uh, or heard from her uh, directly during this trip was in Guatemala, and the message was, do not come to the U.S. What does that say to you? Yeah, I, well, I, I would like to say that here the the uh, the specialist in that issues is Guadalupe, but um, I would like to say that um, uh, yes, of course, Mexico um, is is working um, towards an immigration uh, treaty, but um, it has not concealed through this time because, as well as COVID, right? It's it's more or less uh, the situation that it's. The experience here in, in in the northern side of Mexico, but uh, I would definitely would have to say that Guadalupe is ex, is uh, ex, expert in. Yeah, in we know that, but that. we're interested in what <laughs> we're interested in what you think about that comment. Sure. Um, well, things are our um, Biden's administration. It's 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 um it's working through uh, is working with Mexican uh, President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador to. Um, to engage in a program for um, migrants here, uh, as well as um, yes, migrants in, in Mexico, in migrants in Mexico, and um, unfortunately, we have not seen uh, an advancement in, in that matter, in not only in South in South Mexico, but as well as here in in the northern side. So I think this is this issue is going to keep. Um, working throughout the throughout the years probably because um things mm. have not 
have not developed as they plan, as both both administrations planned. Unfortunately, three the three, the three administration plans. So I think it's interesting to have this conversation with Guatemala, Mexico, and and the United States administrations. I would like to I would like to add uh, to what uh, Dr. Orozco said about and on your question about um, the visit of Vice President Harris to Guatemala, Mexico, and how this. Uh, is connected with our conversation about race, class, about understanding, about education, about culture. I believe that uh, it's very important that all our countries recognize our shared responsibility in what is happening right now in the hemisphere and the mass migrations in, in the violence that is connected with drug consumption. Of course, uh, drug trafficking, arms smuggling, the violence is not just, uh, I mean, focus on what is happening in Canada, in Central America or Mexico. We have shared responsibilities. And if we try to collaborate to address the root causes of the issues we're talking about, gang violence, drug trafficking, and mass migration or regular migration, we're going to be able to, to have a, a better world and to address these issues. And we, you know, we have to understand that when people look different, if people are poor, if people are brown, if people are, are not privileged, that does not mean that they are going to go to the United States to commit crimes. They are not going to go to the United States to cause problems. They're going to be going there to work. And we have to alleviate. We have to, to finish with that, with those type of prejudices. We need to understand each other and try to collaborate and to understand that all what is happening in the hemisphere have a lot to do with all that we are with our decisions. And, and an important decision we have to, to make is to, to try to, to help, to educate others, uh, to try to tell them who we are and how we can address these issues as, you know, as people, not as groups of people coming from different countries, coming from different ethnicities or races, this is something that we that we need to learn, and I think if Doctor uh, if if uh, Vice President Harris, when he comes and he encounters this with openness, both from Mexico and from 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 the United States, will will have will have better results. Let's see what happens. Doctor Orozco, um, did did you have any final thoughts? Oh, th- thank you, JJ, for having me. This is a, a this is my first experience here in a podcast. So this, well, you this did a brilliant job. <laughs> really. <laughs> My final thoughts is that even though there is there is an institutional and a structural um, racism um, approach in, in some periods of the government, no? of course there is um, a social and cultural relationship with between society. So so I would just like to keep that in a positive thought. No, but of course there is inequality, but we also have many things in common. So I would like to keep that in thought. And even though there is the border that the border is, is shut down for over a year, and this has been a historical event that we would never imagine, mm-hmm. um, we still continue um, to conversate and to, and to inter- interchange between the San Diego Society and Tijuana Society. Okay. Dr. Orozco, thank you so much for joining no, us on Colors. No, thank you so much, JJ and Guadalupe, for having me. Thank really. you, Sumi. Thank you very much. You're listening to Colors. My name is Sasha. I'm originally from South Korea. I work as a web content strategist in Seattle. Not everyone in my family speaks fluent English. My mother speaks with a heavy accent, and she doesn't know a lot of idioms like break a leg or that's a piece of cake. 
I can usually tell when she doesn't get something because she'll just smile silently with closed lips. Linguists say that it takes four times longer for an English speaker to learn an Asian language like Korean or Japanese than to learn another Romance language with shared Latin roots like French or Spanish. When my mother was working, she was an OBGYN in some of the neediest communities in the country. Her career moved us to places like Mount Bayou, Mississippi, that was founded by two former slaves, then to Spearman, Texas, a small town where high school football ruled, and then later to more cosmopolitan areas like Queens, New York. She helped thousands of women deliver babies into the world, guiding them through the most vulnerable time in their lives. But because she doesn't speak perfect English, she's often the target of racism. It really saddens me when I see other people make fun of my mother, thinking that she's stupid because she has an accent. I wish they knew her history and saw how much she had contributed to this society. One time, we encountered a group of men who were making ching-chong noises at her. I wanted to yell at them, Hey, that is not cool. Maybe my mother helped your wife. Maybe she even brought your child into this world. But the men were a lot bigger than us. So I just held my mother's hand and we walked swiftly away from them. My mother is 80 now, and I've been horrified by what people like her have been going through during this pandemic. It's awful that some people blame Asians for the coronavirus and they equate us with bats and disease. I hope my mother is okay, and I hope that whenever she goes out, people will somehow see the light inside of her instead of a virus that needs to be beaten. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. Guadalupe, I really enjoyed talking to uh, Dr. Orozco about her experiences as a Latina, but also getting her brilliant knowledge about, you know, this very interesting merging of race and class and how important it is to understand it. We in America who are African-Americans and uh, maybe Caucasian and uh, uh, European descent or, or other descents from different places in the world may not understand how that that whole racism piece works in Mexican culture, but she explained it very well. Yeah, she explained it very. She explained it very well, and also from the perspective of someone who lives at the border, we are we are not just talking about race and class. We're talking about race, class, and ethnicity together. In the United States, these issues are studied separately, and different academics, different commentators talk about these subjects in in, in separate ways. In Mexico, in the rest of Latin America, these subjects are combined, and uh, unfortunately, they reflect. Uh, some vulnerabilities that are important and inequalities that have caused some conflicts and, and I mean, an and an unfair system to be working. Injustice has a lot to do in, in Mexico, for example, and in the rest of Latin America with your social class, the color of your skin and your background, your indigenous background, the background of the ancestors that, that were here before the Spaniards came. This yeah. is a very, very interesting subject. Yeah. Do you think that there's anything that folks who've grown up and lived here in the U.S. all their lives can learn from Mexico's experience with race? I believe that it is important to acknowledge that there is racism. The racism is systemic, but also structural. And I believe if we acknowledge that something is happening, we can address it. If we don't, if, if we kind of close our eyes 
to what is happening. We will not be able to address it. Also, in the context of North America, and with the attempt of generating or, or creating or continuing building uh, a region that's called North America, where uh, partners and friends, neighbors, we're gonna be working together to grow together. Uh, we need to acknowledge the fact that poverty, class, uh, I mean, class, ethnicity, and race uh, come together. And we have to understand that that does not make poor people violent, that does not make poor people a threat to a system of, uh, of, of countries that would like to develop. We need to acknowledge that there is, that there is racism, that there is prejudice to address it, to solve the situation, to communicate better. And this is going to help us to develop better policies, better policies that include uh, more people. I think that inclusion in this system of North America has to be based on an understanding of our cultures and an understanding of the inequalities and the racism that exists that does not only exist in the United States or in Canada, that exists all in, in the whole in the whole hemisphere. Well, I think that she did a wonderful job explaining that, and so did you. And I really appreciate you uh, joining us as well on the Colors podcast. Thank you, JJ. I appreciate very much your invitation to host this program. Uh, thank you for inviting us. Thank you for being open to listen to our voices coming from the South. I'm J.J. Green, and I'm Black. I am Guadalupe Correa Cabrera, and I'm a Latina. And this is Colors. Coming up in our next episode of Colors. The kick, it's a good one. Green driven back to midfield on the far side. He's got the ball up to the 45, far side 40. A seam to the 35, bolts a man to the 30, breaks it to the near side 25. Watch out to the 20, near side, he's gone. Touchdown! If you follow the NFL, you know he was the fastest man in the NFL for more than 20 years. Daryl Green is his name. And not only is football a passion, but so is the conversation about race. I think where we are on race is we had a greater consciousness probably than I've ever known in my 61 years. The young generation did not experience what a lot of us experienced, so that eliminates that. Mm -hmm. You saw that by the marches. The yeah. marches were not black people marching. Matter of fact, the 1960s marches with Dr. King, that were white people leading that march, buddy. Yeah. They were in that. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but more so, <clears throat> uh, so we're in a greater place of consciousness. We're in a greater opportunity to win, maybe not in you in my lifetime, but we're in a, we're one of the best places we've ever been in. That's coming up in our next episode of Colors. Time to shut it down for this episode, and in doing so, we want to say thank you to Hillary Howard, Mike Chikaitis, Dimitri Sotis, Kara Boyd, Cortland Cox, Thedford Collins, Ron Pemberton, Julia Ziegler, Joel Oxley, Kesha Smith, Gabriel Franco, Audrey Henson, the WTOP social team. Also, thank you to Brennan Hazelton, Sean Anderson, Charles Height, Gina Bazemore, Ann Kaur. Thank you to Gretchen Soren, Joe Detrani, Peggy Byard, and Angelie Chung. A big thank you this week for the musicians, for Jesse Gallagher and Cosmic and Offshane. And a special thank you to you and all of our guests this week because Colors is the winner of the Edward R. Murrow Region 12 Award for Large Market Radio Podcast. That is a gigantic honor for us. We are tremendously gratified. 
and humbled by this honor because we're not in it for the honors or the awards. We're in it to make a difference. But gosh, it does feel very good to be recognized. And finally, we want to thank you for listening and also to remind you, keep talking to each other. And just as important, keep listening to each other. If you have questions or comments or suggestions, send us an email at colors at thecolorspodcast.com. You can subscribe to Colors on Apple, Spotify, Podcast One, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America.